This episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the number one daily fantasy sports app. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 587. Welcome in. It is Tuesday. We're going to talk today about Monday Night Football. There were two games last night on Monday night. We'll talk about Colorado football. And uh, we're going to answer some Patreon questions at the end of the show today. I want to start, though, before anything else, with a... uh, I want to file a complaint with whoever's listening out there. Probably nobody, but I just got to get it off my chest. I got to say, I'm really not enjoying having two Monday night football games happen. It's too much. I I can't watch both both of them at the same time. And because they're staggered and start about an hour apart, they're happening at the same time. And ESPN refuses to let me watch one, then watch another. I know I'm probably the only person on the planet with this problem because I'm one of the few people who it's my job to watch every football game and talk about it. I know a normal person going to work on a Tuesday morning, they're not going to just talk about the game from last night. They have to go to bed early and they pick one game probably and watch the best one and they're fine. But there was a play on third and three from the five yard line in the Rams Bengals game where I'm like, I'm locked in. I'm watching. It's a big moment. I'm really engaged. It's a key play in the game. And ESPN goes split screen for like a monumental play, third and three for the Rams on the five-yard line. I have to watch in one corner the game I've been watching and I'm really invested in. And in the other corner, they put on the Eagles and Tampa game. And like, I'm trying to understand. I realize for like a normal person, that's probably great. People like that. They want to know what's going on in the other game and whether they should switch back and forth. But I personally was like really invested in this moment. And then it got relevated to like the corner of the screen. I was like, guys, I want to I wanna watch the Bengals-Rams game right now. I am not here to watch Tampa Philly. I'll, I'll, I already watched it because I watched one, then the other. Ah, oh, man, little things like that uh, irritate me. And we're getting so greedy. Do we need two Monday night football games now? I like having one. And I, I understand for the common person, I, I realize I might be speaking to a very small amount of people because a lot of people... I would imagine like that if there's a bad game, they can switch to the other one. But I miss the days where we just had a great primetime matchup. Neither game, by the way, the best game of the weekend was not a Monday night football game. Why can't we have that? Why can't we have the primetime game shared with a national audience? Why can't that be the best game of the week? Why why is it instead we have like two kind of average games? You know, I just, I am, I'm very aware. I'm probably the only person with this frustration, but if you're a Bengals fan, I would be very sure You were pissed. Third and three from the five-yard line. They put the game up in the corner, then put the Eagles game on screen for some reason. I'm like, guys, I don't want to watch the Eagles game right now. I I don't know. I I wonder. Write and let me know. How do you feel about having two Monday Night Football games happening at the same time? That's even worse, by the way. I'd be fine if the game started earlier and then the next one was afterward. Then you could watch both. But I realize it's a Monday night. And if you can't fit two games on Monday night back to back, then why are we having two games on Monday night? Why are they happening at the same time staggered? It makes no sense to me. Uh, Please write in. Let me know. How do you feel about having two games on Monday night? Am I alone? I'm probably alone. I'm probably the only one who finds it very annoying. But uh, let me know what you think. All right. Before we get into the show, uh, before we get into Monday night directly, we got to pay the bills. So let's do that. Let's pay the bills. Prize Picks is the number one daily fantasy sports app. 
PrizePix allows you to make an entry based on player projections, and in 60 seconds, you can enter something like Travis Kelsey more than five catches, Tyreek Hill more than 100 yards receiving, and Justin Fields less than 200 yards passing. And if your picks are right, you can win money. Making picks makes games more engaging, and you could turn something like $5 into $50. PrizePix offers quick and easy deposits. You can even use Apple Pay. And they have weekly promotions that can lead to big payouts. For example, there's a weekly event called Taco Tuesday. Each Tuesday, Prize Picks discounts select player projections up to 25% to provide even more value. So put your skills to the test in daily fantasy. Go to prizepicks.com CLNS and use code CLNS for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash CLNS, code CLNS, for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize picks, daily fantasy made easy. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing well. Uh, still a bit congested today. Did the neti pot four times, got a lot of mucus out. Not feeling 100%, and uh, my friends tested positive for the Rona, so that's probably what I got. It's going back around, I guess. I, I have no idea. I'm just glad I'm fine. I, I, I'd still very congested, and I feel like this crap in my chest still, but otherwise, I'm totally good. Let's talk about Monday Night Football. On Monday Night Football, the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 25-11. to So Philly won by two touchdowns. It was actually worse than that, though. Tampa got a touchdown and a two-point conversion on their final possession of the game. That made it 25-3. to uh, sorry, it was 25 to 3 before that made it 25 to 11. Uh, also, worth noting, by the way, the Eagles had this really great long drive, nine minute drive at the end of the game to like run out the clock. And uh, I thought that was really impressive the way they just steadily, methodically ran out the clock, never gave the ball back to Tampa. That was pretty cool. Now, the big story from this game, though, as Tampa loses to Philly 25 to 11, the Eagles won on Monday night. The big story here to me is that the Buccaneers' defense looked pretty good, all things considered. Uh, Philly was in the red zone five times in this football game and were held to only one touchdown. They got stopped on a fourth and two early in the red zone, held the field goals. Tampa picked off Jalen Hurts, the Philly quarterback, two times. I thought the Buccaneers' defense played pretty well. The difference in this game, though, was Tampa's execution on offense, or rather their lack of execution the little details really matter. And the Eagles' defense is outstanding. They've got a great pass rush. They're really good in the run game. Jalen Carter, their rookie defensive tackle, is already a budding star in the NFL. And uh, against a really good defense, you can't make little mistakes. You have to catch every pass. You can't have drop passes. You can't have a penalty here and there. You know, Baker Mayfield was late on a throw before halftime. Coming left, back right, he was late, got picked off. Uh, Rashad White fumbled deep in their own territory. These little mistakes add up, and it cost Tampa dearly in this football game. We learned a lot about Tampa, I thought, on Monday Night Football against a really good Eagles team. We learned that Tampa, uh, you know, they could win the NFC South. We know that right now the Saints quarterback Derek Carr is out with an AC joint injury. We'll talk about that later in the show. Tampa's got a good defense, but they're a defensive-led team. And in this football game on Monday night, when they needed Baker and their offense to give them run support and score points, the Buccaneers' offense wasn't good enough. 
And I mean, there's still time. We're only three games into the year. Maybe by the end of the year, they make progress and aren't making little mistakes in key moments. But right now we've learned that, hey, uh, the, the limiting factor of this football team is Baker Mayfield and the Buccaneers offense. The defense looks pretty good. They're making a lot of plays. I thought they were given a couple hard situations, actually, with some turnovers that Tampa had on offense where they were given a, a, a shot where they're backed up way in their own territory, having to stop the Eagles defense. And I thought for the most part, Tampa wasn't great on defense, but they did really well in a tough situation. And they didn't get enough support from their offense. Now, I, I did say there were things that Tampa did wrong on defense, right? Philly ran the ball for over 200 yards in this football game. DeAndre Swift, their running back, had 16 carries for 130 yards. Um, you know, Philly dominated on both sides of the ball, offense and defense. A.J. Brown had nine catches for 131 yards. And to me, like, the, the gaping holes in the running game. The Eagles' offensive line absolutely dominated up front. Now, Jalen Hurts had two interceptions. I don't love that. He did have two touchdowns as well. One on a quarterback sneak, and then uh, Jalen Hurts had a really sweet touchdown pass where he was hanging out in the pocket. The play was long, took a long time to develop. By the end, it was almost like a, I mean, really this speaks to how good the Eagles offensive line was where he didn't extend the play outside the pocket. He just was in the pocket for a long, long time. And he found his receiver Zacchaeus running across the middle, and basically threw him open. It was kind of a cool play where the route was a, a deep dig across the middle of the field, and Jalen Hurts threw a high angle up over the defender guarding him, like kind of led him back farther downfield into a tight little window for a touchdown. It was kind of a great play where he made that happen. Jalen Hurts with a great throw, good ball placement, made that into a touchdown to a receiver that really wasn't open based on the route they were running. And, you know, he threw a receiver open into an area where the route wasn't leading him. I really like that. Um, but all around, Philly was dominant. They look fantastic, and uh, they're 3-0. and So even though Jalen Hurts doesn't have the best numbers in the world so far this year, doing good enough to win, um, the quarterback sneak remains unbeatable, basically, for Philly. In short yardage, fourth and one, third and one, fourth and inches, fourth and goal. They put Jalen Hurts under center. They run that quarterback sneak, and... Uh, Nobody can stop it, man. It really, I don't really even know what you can do. And it's not just because they're pushing Jalen Hurts from behind. It's that their offensive line gets so much push. Jalen Hurts puts himself in the right position. I'm kind of convinced, even if they ban the, the ability to push a ball carrier from behind after this year, even if they get rid of that, Jalen Hurts and Philly's still going to get a lot of first downs and quarterback sneaks simply because Jalen Hurts just gets himself right down in there underneath Great position. They get a lot of push on the interior of that offensive line. And uh, it's a basically unstoppable play for Philly. Uh, so you can, uh, like I said, I thought Tampa's defense did really well. They were in the red zone five times, only gave up one touchdown to Philly. You can also argue, though, Philly had the ball again at the end of the game for like nine minutes. They ran out the entire rest of the clock. Um, ah, You know, I, I'm not one that's eager to talk bad about the Buccaneers defense. I thought with what they were given, they did a pretty good job. And the reality is that Baker Mayfield and Tampa's offense got to step up and make more plays. There were a couple throws to Mike Evans where I thought Mike Evans could have caught him, but they also could have been better balls. And I think both players, the quarterback and the receiver, could both be a little better there and make that play happen. There were little things that were costing Tampa's offense that 
Uh, if they want to be a serious threat in the NFC, you have to win a game like this. You have to be able to compete, keep it close, and score enough points. And right now, where Baker Mayfield on the Buccaneers' offense is, is not executing at a high enough level to win a big game against a Super Bowl contender-type football team like the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, right now in the NFC, from what I've seen, the 49ers and the Eagles are the two best teams in the NFC. One of them is probably going to be in the Super Bowl. Um, well, I'm curious if Dallas can throw themselves in the mix as well. Losing Trevon Diggs, the star corner in Dallas, I think is a much bigger deal than we're giving credit to. I'd say their defense was a dominating force that um, I think really lost a key player that's going to hurt them uh, and hurt their every aspect of the, the Cowboys defense is going to be a step down now because of losing a star corner. That's a problem. So again, in the NFC, Philly and San Francisco are the two best teams. We will see if Dallas can also throw themselves into that mix. All right, um, let's talk about the other game on Monday Night Football. i got to reshuffle my notes here. we got a little bit going on. Um, Monday Night Football Game 2 was a game between Cincinnati and the Rams. The Cincinnati Bengals beat the Rams on Monday Night Football, the second game of the night, 19-16. to There's a couple things worth noting we should talk about. Number one, Bengals receiver Jamar Chase really hit his stride in this football game. He had 12 catches for 141 yards. That is the, uh, that's more yards and catches in week one and two combined uh, in week three that he had. So he's finally kind of starting to get going. Uh, I like to see that. The Bengals started putting Jamar Chase in the slot, meaning instead of way out wide, more in a slot position farther inside. That's giving Jamar Chase better matchups where he's being guarded by linebackers and safeties and that third corner. I think that's an interesting wrinkle that, uh, Cincinnati's doing that I it's frankly it's working uh, it's not a new thing they've done it all year but uh, it's really starting to pay off with Jamar Chase getting really good matchups against players that physically are going to have a hard time guarding him Joe Burrow's not at 100% the Bengals quarterback's got a calf injury um, you know at first I was kind of like skeptical how bad is his calf injury really going to affect Joe Burrow but then I went back to my playing days and I really thought about it you know when you did training camp I remember we would do conditioning where Gosh, I was so pissed in college. The quarterback who ended up being the starting quarterback told everyone he had an injury. He didn't. It was it was BS. But he told everyone, oh, I'm hurt. I can't do conditioning. And so he didn't have to do like all the crazy sprints in training camp. And in training camp, your legs are everything. And once you lose your legs, it's a big problem. Such a big part of throwing the football is your legs. I was pissed. I, I was number one for all the quarterbacks in conditioning. He didn't even have to run. My legs were spent like week one of training camp. His legs were great all through the season. Um, and my point is that using your legs is a big part of throwing the football. I don't know how much the calf injury is affecting Joe Burrow, but I know that when your legs aren't at 100%, it makes throwing a football way more difficult. Everyone thinks it's all with your arms, but the reality is a good throwing motion Starts with your feet and starts with your legs. Your legs and your core generate a lot of torque and power to throw the ball downfield. Um, you know, the Bengals still got their first win of the year. That's awesome. I think it's actually kind of funny. It's laughable to me that there were fans of Cincinnati, some of who were which some of which who were calling for Zach Taylor, the Bengals head coach, to be fired. Like I I think people really overreacted to the 0-2 start for Cincinnati. Um, how about some gratitude, actually, if you're a Cincinnati Bengals fan? Like, Zach Taylor is the coach. Him and Joe Burrow just got you to back-to-back -to -back 
AFC title games. In fact, you went to a Super Bowl two years ago. I'm in no hurry to run Zach Taylor out of town. Yeah, they lost two games to start the year. It sucked. They weren't doing great. That's that's part of the game sometimes. And remember, Joe Burrow isn't fully healthy. That's a problem and definitely going to hold them back. The Bengals' next three games, they play at Tennessee, then they play at Arizona, then they play Seattle in Cincinnati. All three are easily winnable games. Then you could be, um, I guess, four and two to start the year in a much different position. And suddenly all the, the talk about should we fire Zach Taylor better disappear really quick. They got a bye week seven. Cincinnati plays on the road at the 49ers week eight. That's a really tough game. They follow that up with a game at home against Buffalo. Um, you know, week eight and nine, 49ers, then Buffalo back-to-back. That's not easy. The Bengals do not have an easy schedule this year. And I always thought Cincinnati was kind of destined for a small step backward this year. They've been to back-to-back AFC titles. They've been losing a couple of key players here and there on defense basically every year. And it's just hard to keep up the level of success that they've had in Cincinnati. But um, I don't know. I, I just, this could be kind of a lost year, a year that when we look back on the career of Joe Burrow, we go, oh yeah, remember that year, 2023? They, you know, they were solid. They weren't the same. And they kind of had to use the year to regroup and reload for the next year. I think that could be very possible for Cincinnati, but they won their first game of the year. And uh, I'm not really interested in this whole conversation of giving up on, uh Zach Taylor. It's like, what are you doing? Get out of here. Now, it is worth noting, Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins is in the last year of his contract. And as you talk about the Bengals and they paid Joe Burrow a ton of money, next they got to pay Jamar Chase and T. Higgins, their two-star receivers. T. Higgins is in a contract year, meaning that after this year, he does not have a long-term contract. And so far this year, T. Higgins has been targeted 28 times. He only has 10 catches for 110 yards. He does have two touchdowns, but uh, it's very possible T. Higgins having a down year could actually work to benefit Cincinnati, where they could save a little bit of money on their T. Higgins contract, get him locked down long term for a little less money if his numbers are down this year, which so far T. Higgins' numbers are down. He had two catches on eight targets last night on Monday night. Week one, he had no catches on eight targets. I mean, he is not having the best year of his career, and uh, that might actually be a quietly good thing for Cincinnati, allowing them to extend him long-term for maybe a little bit less money and leaving more money available for Jamar Chase and for the rest of the guys they want to use to build around Joe Burrow and this Bengals offense. Now, we got to talk about the Rams. Overall, I thought that in the first three weeks of the year, the LA Rams impressed me. They're one and two, but they've been really competitive. They beat Seattle 30 to 13 week one. Week two, they lost by seven to the 49ers. And uh, now here in week three, They lost to Cincinnati by a field goal. A Bengals team that I think is pretty good, actually. And I think for the Rams, like, I was just totally wrong. They look like a six or seven win team who is going to be building for their future and in a good position maybe next year or the year after to make another run. I mean, they really are. They got young guys everywhere, making big plays, doing good stuff. And I talked about wondering whether or not the Rams might have a shot at Caleb Williams during the preseason. Let's get rid of that right now. First of all, they don't need Caleb Williams. Matthew Stafford's playing at a really high level. And second of all, the Rams are going to be nowhere near in a position to draft a quarterback like Caleb Williams. They are going to not have uh, a top first-round pick. And, uh, you know, one thing I want to talk about in this game specifically between Cincinnati and L.A. Rams, it's very weird to me 
The Rams kind of abandoned the run. You know, week one, they ran the ball 40 times. In week two, they ran the ball 22 times. Against Cincinnati, uh, Kyron Williams, the number one running back for the Rams, had 10 carries for 38 yards. They ran a total of three, uh, 13 times. One of them was a not a designed run, but a run by Matthew Stafford. Especially in the red zone, it was very weird to me. The Rams made no effort to run the football. Um, and I, I left myself, I was, I was left wondering like, Hmm, I, I mean, like I trust Sean McVay. He knows more about football than I do, but it was interesting. And I did take note of the fact that the Rams did not really try to run the football at all on Monday night. Now the offensive line was a struggle and maybe that's part of why, um, you know, their left tackle, Alaric Jackson left the game injured. I'm sure that didn't help them. It really didn't help them in the passing game. Matthew Stafford got sacked six times in this football game. Uh, They had to put up number 57, Zach Thomas. Zach Thomas, and we love the name Zach, but Zach Thomas, not a great left tackle. In fact, as far as I can tell, he's actually their backup right tackle, who they put, he's kind of their utility guy, I guess, who can bounce between sides. But I thought Zach Thomas was a right tackle. He came in as the backup left tackle in this football game. Zach Thomas, while we love the name Zach, we have to acknowledge Zach Thomas had no chance at blocking really good defensive end from Cincinnati, Trey Hendrickson, who kind of ruined that Rams offense in the second half of this football game on Monday night. You know, the Rams had the ball five times in the second half. They had a field goal on their first drive of the second half. On the last drive of their second half, they put together uh, a really nice drive. But those middle three drives, they had three three and outs that were not combined. There were three sacks on those three drives. And the offensive line was a problem. Trey Hendrickson was causing a lot of problems with Zach Thomas, their backup left tackle. And, uh, You know, Matthew Stafford really didn't have a shot a couple times where he's just like, he's on his back and totally getting obliterated. Now, Matthew Stafford, the Rams quarterback, I believe is doing some really awesome stuff this year. He deserves respect. He deserves credit. Uh, He had a great throw against the Bengals where, first of all, physically he makes it look so easy. His arm is massive, but he had a throw to Tutu Atwell, which was like in extreme anticipation, leading him across the field, away from a defender into a tight window is a beautiful throw. Um, now Stafford did have two interceptions in this football game. His second one was tipped. That's not his fault. The first interception Matthew Stafford threw though, was a really, really bad decision where he was rolling left. He decided to like throw the ball kind of underhand, underarm, uh, back across the middle of the field late and it got picked off. It was a bad decision. And I got to say this, I really, really love Dan Orlovsky, the ESPN broadcaster, he does a great job. He's a great broadcaster, does good work. He knows the game. But it is worth saying, Dan Orlovsky should never, ever broadcast a Matthew Stafford game ever again. Uh, I like Dan Orlovsky, but he played quarterback in Detroit. He was there in 2008, right before they drafted Matthew Stafford in 2015. He was Matthew Stafford's backup in Detroit. They're good friends. And uh, Dan Orlovsky, I don't know if he... Didn't want to talk bad about his friend. I don't know if he doesn't want to talk bad about him because it might make him look jealous or something. I have no idea, but it drives me nuts that Dan Orlovsky refuses to be critical of Matthew Stafford. That's your job as an analyst during a game. When the quarterback makes a mistake, you got to point it out. That's part of being an analyst. And after the terrible interception Matthew Stafford threw in the first half, crickets, nothing I was waiting, like, hey, what are they going to say about this? That's a terrible decision. They showed the replay like five times, and Dan Orlovsky says nothing. In fact, all he said was, oh, we don't even know if that's an interception. It might be a a drop pass. 
And then there was another play later. It was later earlier. I don't remember. There was a play that I really, really remember. Or pre-snap, it's like they are showing blitz. It looks like they're blitzing. And as a quarterback, even if they are a lot of the Bengals are really dynamic. They do a lot of stuff pre-snap where they'll show you a blitz and they back off or they'll back off, then run a late blitz onto the field. But the Bengals regularly do a lot of stuff pre-snap to mess with a quarterback. This was not one of those scenarios. Pre-snap, the Bengals show all out pressure. They're overloaded to the right side. They have no answer protection-wise. And if you're a quarterback, you have to take that threat seriously. You can't get have you know, you can't have the Bengals defense in that scenario blitz you on it was second and ten and not see it coming at all. They're showing blitz. You gotta call an audible or call a hot route or do something in preparation for, hey, if they blitz, we can't protect that. Not only did Matthew Stafford not make any kind of pre-snap change, he didn't even see the blitz coming. And I'm like, I'm watching at home going, they're blitzing off the right side of the line. By the way, that's your front side. As a quarterback, as you drop back as a right-handed quarterback, your backside is hard to see because that's your left side. Your front side, your peripheral vision can see the entire way. Not only did he not see the blitz pre-snap, his peripheral vision didn't allow him to even feel the blitz coming from the right side. He got sacked on second and 10. It kind of ruined their drive. And that's a play where as a broadcaster, you have to say, look, that's that's on Matthew Stafford. That's sack. He's got to pick it up pre-snap. He's got to do something about it. And you can't have a guy come free off your front side and not even see it at all. Um, Dan Orlovsky was silent in those two moments. And I was like, uh, what? I like Dan Orlovsky, but when it comes to Matthew Stafford, he is simply unable to be objective. So I don't know, man. I Matthew Stafford, all due respect, he's fantastic. He's having a great year. Uh, the Rams look way better than I thought, but not everything Matthew Stafford does is good. And uh, he had a bad interception. He took a bad sack. I thought in the second half he got sacked because he had no chance. I mean, their left tackle was a backup, Zach Thomas, and uh, he simply could not guard or block Trey Hendrickson at all. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to look for. If you ever get to watch a Rams game, with Dan Orlovsky broadcasting. Just notice, it's very interesting how much Dan Orlovsky goes out of his way almost to never mention anything Matthew Stafford does bad and, in fact, talks about him like he's the second coming of Jesus. Matthew Stafford's a really good quarterback, man. He deserves credit. He deserves praise. But he does make mistakes, unlike Dan Orlovsky would allow you to believe and uh, those little things. You have to point that out. When a quarterback gives up a sack, when he throws a bad interception, you got to talk about that. That's part of your job as a broadcaster, I really believe that. You talk about the good, you talk about the bad, and uh, watching, it drove me a little bit nuts that he didn't talk about the bad at all during this football game. All right, um, let's talk about quarterback Derek Carr. Derek Carr, the Saints' new quarterback, got hurt during week three against the Packers, got slammed to the turf, right shoulder right into the ground, then a defender landed on him. He got hurt. He left the game. Uh, We've now discovered that that's a sprained AC joint on that right throwing shoulder for Derek Carr. He will be week to week. I would imagine that Derek Carr is not going to play here in week four against Tampa. So Tampa comes on, goes on the road. They play at New Orleans and the starting quarterback for the New Orleans Saints in that football game. A big game, by the way, kind of the battle for the lead in the NFC South. Both teams are two and one Tampa, New Orleans. The quarterback for New Orleans is going to be a little, little drum roll. Jameis Winston, the former first round pick of Tampa. The guy who didn't work out in Tampa Bay is going to play against his former team 
It's not the first time he started against Tampa, but still, it's interesting and fun. And uh, Jameis Winston, I don't know if you guys have seen the videos I've seen of Jameis Winston, where it's just him not trying to be funny, not trying to do anything silly. But like Jameis Winston does the goofiest stuff, man. The way he runs onto the field, like like waddling, like a like a little weird duck, or like some of the stuff he says is just like outlandish. Like what the heck? Now, um, I also want to really kind of give praise to Jameis Winston. There's a video of Jameis Winston, who's a multimillionaire now, revisiting his childhood home uh, where he grew up in, I believe Alabama. But I've seen the video, like the property, all of it. It's like wow, this is destitute level stuff. And uh, I I think Jameis Winston is a really cool story of a guy who started with nothing and became a millionaire and a high-level NFL player. And uh, still, though, I think it's also worth noting, like, if you want good entertainment, just Google Jameis Winston being goofy. Like, you'll find some really funny videos of him, like, not trying to be. He's unintentionally funny, but he does so many little things that you're like, what? It's just, it's a, it's like a... It's a joke sometimes. You're like, man, Jameis Winston, and I'm, I guess what I'm saying here is that week four, Tampa plays at New Orleans. It's a massive game, the two best teams in the NFC South. And if you want something fun to watch for or look for, just look for the little moments of Jameis Winston being like a goober, basically, doing weird, random stuff on the sidelines, saying funny stuff. Like the moment, for example, where one time you're like, hey, hey, A to W, and you're like, what are you doing, man? Like, that's so silly. Like, like your hands are not pretzels. <laughs> I feel like someone's going to quote that out. Your hands are not pretzels. Please never make fun of me for that. I'm so sorry. Uh, But Jameis Winston like cracks me up. And uh, on top of watching a great football game, I hope week four between Tampa and New Orleans, uh, I'm just excited for the little meme worthy moments for Jameis Winston where he does something funny or goofy. And um, I'm not trying to make fun of him. I just appreciate him. He's like a national treasure. And I legitimately would love to watch a TV show with Jameis Winston just being himself. He, like, really is that funny to me. Put him in, like, a Hawaiian shirt, send him to, I don't know, literally anywhere in the world and have him just share his observations. Like, Marshawn Lynch and Jameis Winston are both hilarious humans that both need TV shows. I think Marshawn actually has one, but I would watch so much TV if you just put Jameis Winston on screen and put him in, like, uncomfortable or funny scenarios. I, I want to see Jameis Winston go to Japan. Like, wh- what would that be like? Jameis Winston, his loud, big self getting, like, looked at and trying to interact with Japanese people. Like, that sounds hilarious to me. And uh, if anyone needs ideas for TV shows, hit me up. I got so many ideas for TV shows where Jameis Winston is, like, the host or star. And you just put him in, a <laughs> in like, a funny scenario. I would watch that in a heartbeat. And I think it would be in the internet era today where you clip everything out and there's YouTube shorts and TikToks and stuff like Jameis Winston on camera needs to happen because he would create so many clickable, memeable, funny, hilarious moments. And uh, I'm telling you, Jameis Winston and like an Anthony Bourdain camera crew, (laughs) send him to like Vietnam, send him to, I mean, send him to Japan and just film the chaos that ensues. It would be amazing, amazing television. I don't know how we got here. I don't know how that tangent happened, but gosh, I love Jameis. Um, News broke today. The New York Jets are signing a veteran quarterback, Trevor Simeon, to their practice squad. A lot of Jets fans are really excited. Ooh, Trevor Simeon's going to save our year. He's our new quarterback. I hate to break it to you. Uh, He's not. He's not the savior of the New York Jets. Trevor Simeon... um, 
<laughs> I don't know. I think Jets fans are so frustrated, understandably so. Aaron Rodgers got hurt four plays into the game. They're heartbroken. You have to watch Zach Wilson every week, which, um, you know, I you know what's really sad? I think Zach Wilson, if he'd really been given a year or two to sit behind Aaron Rodgers, there might have been a chance he could save his career. But he, he is not ready. He didn't have enough time learning behind Aaron. He looks awful. And uh, I think what Jets fans need to accept is that the year is lost. Like, there is no Trevor Simeon. There is no trading for, gosh, I don't know. I mean, Jacoby Brissett's not, the Washington Commanders aren't getting rid of Jacoby Brissett. Like, you're not going to get a good backup quarterback in a trade. The Jets' year is over. Trevor Simeon's about as good as it's going to get. And that's not very good. And, uh, like, I, I've been seeing people on Reddit and YouTube comments and stuff saying, like, oh, like, you know, Trevor Simeon, if he can do what he did in 2001, maybe we can put together a playoff year. It's like, guys, give it up. Like, it, it's the Jets' season is over. The minute Aaron Rodgers' Achilles snapped, the year was over. That's it. And uh, Joe Namath said, I quote, I've seen enough of Zach Wilson. Oh, man, it's so sad because Zach Wilson has a good arm. He can run around a little bit. Like, he can make some plays, but he's just not ready as a decision maker, as a leader, uh, at any level, to be an, an NFL starting quarterback. And, uh, you know, actually, Joe Namath said it. He said, send Zach Wilson to, like, Kansas City to sit behind Patrick Mahomes for two years. That's what he needs. What Zach Wilson really needed was two years sitting behind Aaron Rodgers. And I think if that had happened, maybe Zach Wilson's career might have been salvageable. But at this point, uh, he's playing before he's ready. It doesn't look good. And kind of a weird reality here, if I'm a Jets fan, I don't know that I want to bench Zach Wilson. He's doing horrible, and that's kind of good. Like, the worse Zach Wilson does, the better the Jets will do in the draft next year. And maybe you could draft a player in the first round that would allow the Jets to help Aaron Rodgers win next year. Or what about this? Imagine if the Jets were so bad, they could draft... Drake May or Caleb Williams. If they get a top five pick next year, I mean, the Jets are set. They have Aaron Rodgers potentially coming back. They could bring in a rookie quarterback to come in and sit for a year behind Aaron Rodgers. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing opportunity. Um, but I've given up on Zach Wilson. Similar to Joe Namath, um, it, it's sad because I think it is a missed opportunity. If Zach Wilson had been able to sit for two years behind Aaron he might have been able to learn enough lessons to salvage his career, but he got forced back into duty before he was ready. Didn't have enough time sitting and learning behind Aaron. And uh, it's just to me, I think that, you know, Zach Wilson's going to be really rich. Um, he's going to be able to walk away and do whatever he wants, but he did not work as an NFL quarterback. And uh, I would love for Zach Wilson to prove me wrong. I like him. I even compared him what to, to Gone Freaks, the. Uh, the main character of Hunter x Hunter earlier in the season. Like, he he's a likable guy. I want to see him do well. I'd love to be wrong. But I personally have given up any hope of Zach Wilson working out and being a great quarterback for the Jets. And I've given up on the Jets having a good year. It's just not going to happen. The minute Aaron Rodgers got hurt, their year was lost. All right. Um, how about another big loss? So Denver, the Broncos lost 70-20. to on Sunday to the Miami Dolphins. They got obliterated. Uh, another team in Colorado also got obliterated this past weekend. On Saturday, Oregon beat Colorado 42-6. to And it was a 
Completely dominating performance by Oregon. Oregon looked outstanding. Credit to them. They sacked Shadur Sanders seven times, the Colorado quarterback. And, uh, you know, when Colorado beat TCU week one, myself included, all of us, we all looked around and went, huh, Colorado's better than we thought. So what's the rest of their year going to look like? And there were three big games everyone kind of circled and went, okay, Oregon, USC, Utah. Can they win these three games? Can they be competitive? And, uh, well, one of those games has now happened, the Oregon game. And uh, no, it was not competitive. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't fun to watch. It was a it was a train wreck. I mean, it was like when, was it East Palestine? A, a train got derailed and put up toxic stuff in the air and all this horrible stuff happened. It was like that. It was like really bad. I was like, oh, there's no saving this. This is just really a bad game. And um, it's not a shock that, Oregon obliterated Colorado. I mean, we saw two weeks ago Colorado barely survived. They had like a sketchy win over Colorado State in double overtime. And if you need double overtime to beat Colorado State, it's hard to imagine you can beat USC, Oregon, Utah. Um, And Colorado now, they've been knocked down a peg. They're unranked. And I want to play a clip. This is what Oregon coach Dan Lanning said to his team before the game in the locker room to kind of fire up his guys. Rooted in substance, not flash, rooted in substance. Today, we talk with our pads. The Cinderella story is over, man, right? They're fighting for clicks, we're fighting for wins. There's a difference. This game ain't gonna be played in Hollywood, it's gonna be played on the grass. Let's go. I'm not gonna lie, I don't love that being made public. Like what a coach says to his team privately in the locker room pregame to motivate their team. I don't think that needs to be broadcast nationally. It's kind of unfortunate that got out of the locker room, but I want to share some of what Colorado head coach Deion Sanders said postgame and how he responded to getting his butt kicked and how he even responded directly to what Dan Landing just said about playing for clicks. Take a listen. It's a good old-fashioned butt kicking. No excuses, no nothing. Um, Their coaches did a heck of a job preparing their team. Obviously, we didn't. We lost offensively, defensively, as well as special teams. Well-coached team, uh, Bo Nix played his butt off. Defensively, they presented some things that I guess we just couldn't get around. We couldn't advance the ball rushing or uh, throwing the ball as well. Seemed like they had our number. But hats off to their coaching staff, to their head coach. Great job, and they're truly prepared. I really, really like that answer. I mean, there's no excuses there. He said we got our butts kicked. He gave credit to Oregon talked about their coaching staff, talked about how good they did. I think all around, that's a really great statement from Deion Sanders. And uh, the next quote I want to share is really interesting. Deion talks about Colorado getting humbled. People around the country would say, this is what they needed to humble themselves. We wasn't arrogant or whatever. We just, we're confident people. If our confidence offends your insecurity, that's a problem with you. It's not us. Uh, we expect to do well. We expect to play well. We expect to win every game we step out there. We expect to practice to perfection and go out there and uh, execute the things that we practice. We just didn't do it today. But uh, it's not something that was needed. It's just like saying you get in a car wreck or something. Oh, he needed that to slow him down. You don't need that. That's just stupid. It's just something that happened and we they got the best of us today. That's just it. I have no doubt that some people really enjoyed watching Colorado get obliterated on Saturday. I mean, that little yappy dog got just pounded into the ground. Um, I think there's a great line from Dion, though. Dion just said, if our confidence offends your insecurity, that's a problem with you. 
You know, we expect to win. We expect to do well every time we get on the field. That's awesome. Now, the next thing Dion said was this. Take a listen. We ain't got time to have no pity party. Ain't nobody walk around the locker room with napkins and tissues. Get your butt up. Let's get on that plane. Let's go. I don't say stuff just to say it for a click, you know, contrary to what some may say. But, uh, yeah, I, get, I keep receipts. Uh, but I'm serious. I analyze and I understand what we're up against and what we have and what we need. One thing that I can say honestly and candidly, you better get me right now. This is the worst we're going to be. You better get me right now. You better get me right now. This is the worst we're going to be. I love that. And uh, you better beat us now because we're only getting it better is basically what he's saying. That's awesome. And uh, Dion, it's unfortunate that the Pac-12 is falling apart because Colorado against Oregon every year will be a fun rivalry game to develop. I, I would love to see Dan Lanning and Deion Sanders kind of go back and forth and play each other every year and watch how Colorado grows and can they eventually compete with with Oregon. And it's really kind of disappointing that we're not going to get to develop and build a rivalry here. Um, but Dion next year in the Pac-12 is going to start this process all over again. He's going to offend people. The people in the Big 12 are going to be bothered by him. And I think it's awesome, man. You know, Deion Sanders is great for football all around. I mean, we saw a game. I feel like, and maybe this is something that's been happening for a long time that I just wasn't paying close enough attention to, but it does feel like this year college coaches more and more are throwing little jabs at each other and, and making it fun, and there's more drama than ever. And I think Dion kind of is part of that. I mean, we saw Ryan Day, the coach of Ohio State, take a shot uh, talking about uh, uh, what's the Lou Holtz, the, the former Notre Dame coach. Um what did he say about us? You know, really, and I, I really like that Dion has added this, I think, to, to college football, where more than ever, we're seeing personality from college coaches, and it's a recruiting ploy. It's part of getting your message out there. I think it makes college football more fun. Now, the next thing I want to share, the next clip of Dion Sanders is really, really important, though, because people need to hear this. Dion Sanders, I think, is really misunderstood. He talks a lot about himself, and he'll tell you, we're great, we believe, we're confident. Dion will tell you how great he is, and he's usually right. But there's one thing Dion Sanders does not do. It's very, very important. People talk trash to him. Dion Sanders does not sling it back. Dion Sanders does not talk trash to other people or other coaches. That is not his way. I don't think he likes his team doing that. And um, I, I really think that's a, a part of Dion Sanders that gets really misunderstood. They see a loud guy with sunglasses and a hood and other stuff, and they judge him without listening to him and getting to know him. And as I've listened to Deion Sanders a ton, he's really classy, he's fun, he's good to listen to, but he really doesn't ever stoop down to the level of attacking other people. So take a listen to this quote here. God bless him though, man, he's a great coach. He did a great job. God bless him, he can take their shots, they won. I don't shoot, I don't do that, they won. We got some work to do. And, uh... You better get us right now, because I like what I see. I, I love the. I know I have on shades, but I can see the future, and it looks really good. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I really am. I absolutely love what Dion just said. I don't shoot. I don't do that. Take your shots, right? Dion is not going to stoop down to your level and talk crap or talk bad about someone else. And it's really funny thinking about, you know, Dan Lanning is this young coach at Oregon. I love the idea of Dan Lanning, a coach talking trash to Deion Sanders, the guy who played in the MLB 
the NFL, NFL Hall of Famer with a gold jacket. To me, Deion Sanders feels untouchable. And I mean, you can't just be his buddy if you're competing against him. But if I'm Dan Landing, like I would rather shake his hand and be on good terms. That's an awesome dude. And maybe I'm a bit of a fan, I guess. I don't know. But um, it is interesting for me to imagine a a guy like Dan Landing taking shots at the player, Deion Sanders. Like, think about Dan Lanning played football at some point. The audacity, right, of, of a former player, Dan Lanning, talking trash to former player, Deion Sanders. But Deion's not just a former player. He's also a coach, and I find it really interesting. Now, this is very important, too. I talked about how Dion doesn't talk trash about other people. Um, I want to share what Dan Lanning, the Oregon head coach, said post-game because I think it's important to share both sides of the story and both sides of the narrative and allow people to see, um, I think, Dan Lanning's true color. So take a listen to this. We were prepared for a battle. It didn't end up being a battle. But I've also been on the the other end of this before, too. And I think that team's heading the right direction. I think Coach is doing a phenomenal job. Obviously, he's brought great enthusiasm and, uh, you know, response from his players. And I know that they'll bounce back from this, uh, this game moving forward. On the same note, you know, I get a little passionate at times, right? I get a little excited about what I want to accomplish for, for our team. And I just want to say, you know, I need to humble myself a little bit. This is one game, right? And I'm not satisfied. That's so what I just told our players. We're about to go play great quarterbacks. We're about to go play great teams moving forward. And it's about how good we can become, right? It's not really about who we play. Are you surprised? I said, show his true colors. You probably thought Dan Lanning was about to say something negative. Um, I think Dan Lanning actually pretty classy. I think he's an awesome coach. Really like him. This is why I didn't like that pregame speech getting recorded and aired nationally. They had a camera in the locker room. I think that your pregame speech to your team, whatever you have to say to fire up your guys, I don't think that needs to be shared publicly. Like that feels kind of sacred. And I don't think that the camera in the locker room catching Dan Lanning saying, you know, they play for clicks, substance, all this other stuff. I, I don't think that accurately represents Dan Landing and how he feels. And uh, I think you say whatever you say to get your team fired up. And in that moment, you want to hype the guys up. But I thought Dan Landing, when it push really came to shove, he was classy, respectful, said good things about Colorado. And that's, I think, really what he is. And it's a shame, I think, that that pregame speech got clipped out and put on TV and Twitter and ESPN and... Instagram and everywhere. And I just don't think it's an accurate representation of Dan Landing, who I think ultimately is a really respectful guy. And uh, really, really, um, I, I like him, man. And I, I just think that it's a shame that uh, that quote got aired publicly. And again, I just think that what you say in your locker room, that feels sacred. That feels like a thing you don't push out there. And Oregon did push it out. But I don't know. I, I felt like they did Dan Landing a bit of a disservice there where I don't think he's a guy who would go out of his way to throw shade at Deion Sanders. He, he, you know, talks a little bit of trash to his team, but that, again, that feels like a sacred thing you say to your players. I don't think that's something that should be out there publicly, and uh, I don't know. I, I really like Dan Lanning. He's awesome. I think he's going to be really dynamic and interesting in the Big Ten next year, and uh, it's just unfortunate that, um, I, I don't know, it adds character. It adds some color to who he is and um, his personality, but I just don't think that pregame speech was an accurate representation of who he is and how he carries himself as a coach. Now, I want to read a question from Patreon. Joshua wrote in on Patreon, patreon.com slash Zach Schaumler. Joshua says, Buenos dias, Zach. After Colorado lost to Oregon, 
something I predicted following the TCU victory. I don't know why you had to include that, Joshua, because I don't, I didn't know you predicted that. I mean, by the way, Joshua said he predicted that after the TCU victory. I have no way to prove that. I have no way of knowing you predicted that. I don't know why you needed to include that in your writing, but I love you, man. Uh, good for you, I guess. Um, Joshua continues and says, I have seen many people state that Colorado got exposed and that their year is over. I believe many people have falsely believed that Colorado is even in a position to compete for a national title this year. That being said, my question is, what would you qualify as a success for Colorado this year? Um, to me, I think Colorado is just getting started as a football program. Uh, you know, they only won one game last year. They were 1-11. They were awful. Already, Colorado is 3-1. They've won three games, three more, you know, three times the games they won last year. That's awesome. I think Dion is doing a great job. Uh, Colorado got smacked by a great team. They lost to Oregon 42-6. to um, You know, and after a sketchy win and double overtime against Colorado State, are we really shocked? I mean, I, I thought that I said at the time, like, I'm hoping that Colorado can compete with Oregon. But after that win over Colorado State, I was like, Ugh, I'm not convinced here. I'm really worried. So what's a realistic expectation? What's a good year for Colorado now? Now that we kind of know who they are and where they fall. <clears throat> I mean, may maybe there's some crazy unexpected success and Colorado beats USC uh, this next weekend. I mean, I will say... USC's defense is significantly worse than Oregon. USC's defense is always suspect, and I think there's a shot Colorado makes the USC game fun and high-scoring and interesting simply because I have no faith in the USC defense, who is regularly a problem for that program. But I think, really, um, the goal here, the success, the, um, the, the thing you're aiming for if you're Colorado football is you want a bowl game. You want to go to a bowl game. That would be—you only need a six-win season for that. If Colorado goes seven and five or eight and four, that's a tremendous, tremendous year for them. Year one with Deion Sanders to go seven and five would be unbelievable at Colorado. It would, I think, really exceed a lot of people's expectations. And uh, you know, seven and five, eight and four feels realistic right now. Um, they got a couple tough games left. They play USC, Oregon State, Washington State, Utah. I mean, maybe they can steal one of those games. If you can steal a win from like Washington State, USC. You're looking at like a four, three, four loss year, which is pretty good if you're Colorado. But I think, remember where, you know, Colorado's been a roller coaster. They started with no one expected anything from them. Then they beat TCU and suddenly some people, like, like you said, Joshua, are literally talking about a national title for Colorado. Like, are you on drugs? No way. Um, but... It really, it's been that way. The expectation is just fluctuating like crazy, up and down and up and down. And no one can keep track and no one can keep up. Uh, realistic is seven and five, eight and four, which would be a tremendous home run. If Colorado went eight and four or seven and five, year one with Dion, where everyone said, the transfer portal is going to ruin college football. You can't have that many guys transfer in and have a cohesive good year. Eight and four would be unbelievable for Colorado football. And it would really be a sign that they're building stuff. So, I think six and six, seven and five, eight and four is a realistic, somewhere in that window is a realistic goal. But if Colorado can get to a bowl game after going one and 11 last year, year one with Dion going to a bowl game, maybe even winning that bowl game, that would be a monumental success for Colorado football. And that's, that's really what they're aiming for. Anything beyond a bowl game is just house money, man. Anything after, anything beyond 
a six win season is just a surprising, really cool overachievement by Colorado, in my opinion. And so uh, that's where I stand. Those are my expectations the rest of the year for Colorado. All right, I got to give a shout out to Washington State quarterback Cameron Ward. Washington State beat Oregon State this past weekend, 38 to 35. Cameron Ward had five touchdowns in this football game. He was 28 for 34 passing at 404 yards, four touchdown passes. He also had a touchdown run on a quarterback sneak. He did have a fumble, but I am, I'm telling you, I, I really want people to hear this. I, I need people to know. And I, I want to be also, let me back up. I went to Washington State. I watched Gardner Minshew play live, and I told you, Gardner Minshew's outstanding. He's fantastic. But the quarterback before him, Luke Falk, I did not believe, and I thought he was garbage. I was right about that. Then Anthony Gordon went to Washington State, had this incredible year, and I was like, he's not an NFL quarterback. Get out of here. Anthony, Anthony Gordon is not an NFL quarterback. I remember saying that. I remember getting lots of hate for that. People I went to college with were furious at me. I was right about that. I'm not a homer for Washington State. I went to school there. I actually hated it. Screw Pullman, Washington. I hated they made me take chemistry class. I was a broadcast major. I'm like, why do I? I hated college. I was not mature enough to handle it, but I really hated going to school there. I have no affinity or love for Washington State. I'm not biased here. In fact, if anything, I'm biased against Washington State because I hate them. I spent tons of money. It was tons of BS. It was a horrible experience going to college there. I didn't like it. So I want it clear. When I tell you Cameron Ward is an NFL quarterback and unbelievable, I'm not biased. If anything, I'm going out of my way to look past my bias against Washington State and telling you Cameron Ward is fantastic. Cameron Ward is the most underappreciated quarterback in all of college football, and it drives me nuts. I don't understand or know why. Hold on, my camera's like freaking out. I looked off to my right. The camera was blurry. I lost my train of thought. It's almost, it's really disappointing, but I, I want to go back to my rant. Cameron Ward is the most underappreciated quarterback in all of college football. It's borderline criminal that people aren't paying more attention to him and talking about him nationally. If Cameron Ward played for like any other program, if he went to Clemson, he would be a Heisman Trophy candidate. If he went to any other program other than Podunk, Washington State, and Pullman, Washington, Cameron Ward would be the talk of college football. I am telling you. Look him up. Watch his highlights. Watch how he plays. He can extend plays. He can make throws from different arm angles. If any quarterback in college football... Looks like Patrick Mahomes, it's Cameron Ward. We talk about all these quarterbacks around college football. Everyone gets all this fanfare. The guy left in the dust, the guy no one's paying attention to that feels criminal to me is Cameron Ward. I hope NFL teams are paying attention to Cameron Ward. That's a franchise quarterback running around in the Palouse, making incredible throws and incredible plays at Washington State. And it baffles me. Like, if Cameron Ward has to transfer to Clemson, he maybe should. He should go somewhere where he's going to get noticed and get appreciated because Cameron Ward is a fantastic quarterback in college football that somehow no one's paying attention to. And I uh, I went to Washington State. I'm close to that program. I, I actually don't really like it, like I said. But I feel like I was the first person and the only person to recognize, hey, Gardner Minshew can play. I watched him beat Baltimore. He didn't play great. But he's an NFL quarterback. He's doing great stuff. I was right about Luke Falk when he said he wasn't an NFL quarterback. I was right about Anthony Gordon when I watched him live at Washington State. He said he's not an NFL quarterback. I am not biased here. I don't just pick every Washington State quarterback and say they're going to be great. Cameron Ward, I'm shocked. He transferred in from 
something word, incarnate word in Texas and is amazing. And the, the world isn't paying enough attention to Cameron Ward. I just have to get it off my chest and say it out loud. It drives me nuts. I have no idea why, but people should pay attention to Cameron Ward. What a fantastic quarterback. Can run, can throw. I've seen him convert like third and 18 and throw for a touchdown. He does stuff that Patrick Mahomes does and nobody's paying attention. Nobody talks about it. I, uh, man, I hope people start to pay attention soon because my advice, if I was Cameron Ward's dad, I'd say, look, man, you should transfer. You should go somewhere where you're going to get noticed and appreciated. Maybe USC needs a quarterback after Caleb Williams is gone. Go be USC's quarterback and dominate. I just really, really believe in Cameron Ward. He's an incredible quarterback, an incredible talent. It drives me nuts that he doesn't get national attention. He's, he's so, so good. Uh, by the way, so I talked about how Washington State beat Oregon State this past weekend. Um, looking ahead, the other school in Oregon and the other school in Washington, the Oregon Ducks play the Washington Huskies at Washington in Seattle uh, in two weeks, October 14th. Oregon plays at Washington. Both teams are undefeated right now. Both teams are in the top 10. That's going to be a phenomenal, phenomenal football game. A Washington team that looks unbeatable for the Huskies. An Oregon team that just dominated Colorado 42-6. I cannot wait to see what happens October 14th between Oregon and Washington. All right. Um, I'm going to have to cut that together. I have no idea what's going to happen there. I was recording. I think it's because I threw my hand out like straight at the camera, and the camera's autofocus focused on my hand. So for like, I don't know how long, your boy Zach was super blurry on, on the camera. And so if you're watching on YouTube, I'm sure it looked really weird. And then I had to cut because I don't know, I don't know what is good from that or not. Um, it really sucks too because I was mid-flow. Like I was mid-rant, really feeling great. Had to cut it off completely. I have no idea. Like I was literally thinking for a second, like this is a rant that like could go viral. And then of course, stick my stupid hand out, out of focus gets all screwed up. I have no idea what happened there, but... Um, Man, I, I really, 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 really believe Cameron Ward is fantastic and uh, needs more focus. All right, let's end the show with questions from Patreon. If you want to support the show, it's very important. If you want to support Strong Opinion Sports, go to patreon.com slash Zach Shomler. I am Zach. Patreon.com slash Zach Shomler. It's a dollar a month. You can donate more if you want to. Please do. It literally pays my rent. But a dollar a month gives you access to submit questions on Patreon. Now, I do not guarantee to read your question on the show. My only guarantee is I look at every single question with my eyeballs and I pick the top couple to read on the show. So, uh, also, I want to say, by the way, they added a perk on Patreon. So if you're at the $5 tier or higher on Patreon, you get access to the Strong Opinion Sports Discord. And it's a fun group. Um, we're just starting out. I have no idea what I'm doing as far as moderating it. Um, I'm learning how all that works. But my vision for this, this Discord server is that it can be a place where I've got a, a couple channels. One is like funny stuff where people can share memes and whatever. And I'd like that. There's a general one. And then there's a sports one. And... I just want a place where we can all hang out and share news and talk about stuff. And you can share your opinions in a place I'm going to pay attention and listen and see it. And um, so at the $5 tier and higher, I'm trying to add more value to Patreon as well as, honestly, I just like that setting. I, I saw in, in the Fantasy Football League I'm in, having a group chat was fun. I'm like, how can I have a group chat with a bunch of people who like the show? So that's what we're doing. And uh, if you're at the $5 tier or higher on Patreon, 
you get automatic access to the Strong Opinion Sports Discord server. And uh, hey, it's a little bit of jokes there, a little bit of fun's happening. We've had some people in already, and uh, we were talking during the games on Sunday. It was fun. I really like doing it. And uh, if you want to join the Discord, the $5 tier or on Patreon or higher gets you access to that. And uh, come hang out. I think it's really cool. Question number one on Patreon today, after Joshua, who is a question we already read, is from Golden Leo. Golden Leo writes in and says, Hey, Zach O'Lantern. Not entirely sports-related, but tangentially connected. Last week, when speaking about playing quarterback, you mentioned a few things that stuck out to me. Things like enjoying a high-stress or ten- tense situations, and most of what you described as important to playing quarterback all fall under textbook traits of people with ADHD. As a 27-year-old, uh, I recently was diagnosed with ADHD and likely on the autism spectrum. And I noticed that most of my colleagues in academia, I'm an aspiring historian, earning a master's in the coming months, all also displayed similar traits. I've noticed a handful of professions with similar patterns that allow neurodivergent people to excel since the requirements work well for people who think in different ways. For the actual question part, Apologies for the extended background context. I was wondering if you yourself had ever been tested or suspected that you might have ADHD. Also, do you think it's possible, maybe possible that high-level quarterbacks may also qualify? Things like spending hours studying film, having heavy awareness of minor details, and being super quick to judge and handle. High-stress situations are all similar uh, to common ADHD neurodivergent traits. I think it would be an interesting thing to look into, and if it's true... It could be a good push to help break mental health stigmas down. Um, <laughs> do I have ADHD? I 1000% believe I have ADHD. Uh, I can't do anything about it. Um, when I was a kid, for example, my mom would put me in a car seat. When I was like two years old, I would freak the living daylights out. I could not sit in my car seat unless the car was moving forward. I could never sit still. I always had more energy. I could never focus on anything. I couldn't read until I was like in fifth grade because I couldn't learn or pay attention in class. Um, I grew up really poor. We couldn't do anything about it financially. Now as an adult, I still don't have the money to like deal with it. I can't go to a doctor and like get an ADHD. I, I can't even afford a doctor visit. Like I, I don't have the stuff to deal with that or figure it out. But I do struggle massively with uh, focusing. And then I also get moments where like I hyper specific, uh, I hyper focus on specific things and get locked into something and can watch film for like 20 hours in a day. Like I I very much, um, I've known for a long time I have like all the symptoms of ADHD and I I can't do anything about it, but I'm aware. Um, I'm not sure how a diagnosis would even help. Like I'm not, I've never known like, okay, like great. Now you know, what do you do about it? Maybe Adderall would help. Um, I still couldn't afford it. So I, again, just... Anything health-related, just an endless wall of like, well, um, our financial, uh, my financial system is not great, and uh, or my financial situation is not great, and our health system is horrible in America. So I, I run into that brick wall financially every time I try to deal with anything like that. In fact, one time, I, I paid a ton of money to go to a doctor, and they didn't help me at all, and it discouraged me from ever wanting to go to a doctor ever again. I spent like three grand to figure out a thing with my nose, and uh, they were like, "Yeah, take Flonase." I was like screw you. Like what? I spent the extra money to go to an ENT and that's, that's your advice is take Flonase. Okay, great. Uh, so I have no faith in the American health system at all and it drives me nuts. But yeah, um, every time I read the, the symptoms or the traits of ADHD, I go, yeah, it's definitely, definitely that's me. 
Um, what do I do about it? I Nothing, really. There's nothing I can do. But um, yeah, sure, I, I believe that. And Is there a stigma that, like, you know, um, I've, I've made jokes, like maybe I'm autistic. That's very possible. That There feels like there's a big... I would never want to look into that for fear of finding out I do have autism because I think if I had autism and was open about it, uh, I would probably get like canceled or people would make fun of me. I think people would stop listening to the show. That feels like a detriment to um, me making money and surviving. ADHD doesn't have the same stigma. So like you mentioned the stigma, like if, I don't know, Patrick Mahomes has ADHD and like he shows all the symptoms. Like I don't think anyone's going to look down on Patrick Mahomes for having ADHD. I don't know why, but like autism and ADHD like are so like different. And I think that um, right or wrong, because one of my best friends in the world has autism and he's like amazing. I, I love him to death. And I think it actually it's like a superpower for him where he's just smarter than everyone. He can figure shit out better. And oh, pardon my French. Um, he can lock into something and it allows him to be really good at his job. He's an engineer and he's amazing. Um, so I have I have no problem with people that are autistic, but I do feel like nationally and uh, to the general public, there's a stigma against autism that doesn't exist when it comes to ADHD. And that's just a, an observation of mine. Uh, Richmond writes in and says, hey, Zach, so Washington State and Oregon State, the Big Ten didn't want them because they don't make enough money. The Big 12 didn't want them because they make no sense geographically. And the ACC, who showed up so late, their best move was to pick up the smart schools uh, didn't want them because their academics weren't good enough. With the expanded playoff having guaranteed bids for the top X conference champions, Washington State and Oregon State can still compete for a championship as a group of five school, at least technically. How much longer will they remain competitively relevant after the downgrade in the regular opposition and conference uh, downgrade in regular opposition and conference revenue? Hate to see two good programs get punished for being smaller than their results. So. Washington State and Oregon State, um, I mean, I guess, I don't know what they're going to do next year. Are they going to stay a pack two? Um, like, I have I have no idea what they do. Um, I think joining the Mountain West would hurt you financially and hurt you optically when it comes to recruiting. I would not be shocked if Washington State and Oregon State just remained independent for a couple of years until they found a place to go. Um, but also, to be honest, I, I went to Washington State. I grew up in Oregon. I know both programs very well. Um, neither of them were bringing in top recruits. I mean, Washington State won uh, with Mike Leach, for example, because Mike Leach was a great coach who had great quarterbacks, and they won with, like, three-star level talent. They were not winning with five stars and the best recruits in the country. Same with Oregon State. Oregon State is not recruiting at the highest level in the country. They're just putting together well-coached football teams that um, steal a couple good recruits from Hawaii and do some good stuff and then dominate. Um, so I don't... I don't know how much um, not being a part of a conference is going to hurt the Pac-12 or hurt Oregon State and Washington State, the people remaining from what's left of whatever the Pac-12 is going to become. I don't know how that's going to hurt them or not. We have no idea how to predict that. Um, but I will point out that Oregon State, Washington State, they're both in the top 25 right now, and they didn't do it with five-star recruits and getting the best players in the country. They did it with good coaching and a couple good players at dynamic, uh, at dynamic players in key positions. And so, um, coaching matters. They have the both teams, Oregon state and Washington state have good coaches right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I guess we'll wait and see. I am really curious to see if they join the mountain West or 
they just remain independent for a year and build a, a schedule themselves because I have no idea what to expect from either program. And it would be sad to see them totally go away. It's actually funny right now. Um, Oregon State spent a ton of money rebuilding their stadium and like, you know, doing upgrades and all this stuff. And their plan was to use a media deal to pay for it. Well, now uh, that money's gone. So to pay for their stadium renovations, they're going to have to raise tuition. So you could be paying like, I don't know, a hundred grand a year to go to Oregon State to pay for your stadium. It's like an insane reality where you're paying as much as going to like some liberal, liberal arts school in LA as it would cost for you to go to Oregon State in-state. I mean, the tuition is going to be insane. And uh, I have no idea what's going to happen to Oregon State or Washington State, but I'm very, very fascinated in that. David writes in, David says, Hey, Zach, I have a question about Colorado against Colorado State. I have watched the late hit by Henry Blackburn on Travis Hunter about 10 times, becoming angrier every time I saw it. My understanding is that he suffered a laceration of his liver and will be out for some games. Do you think that college football should have done more to deter this from happening again? Yes, they penalized Colorado State 30 yards, but without kicking Henry Blackburn out of the game or suspending the player, what is going to stop Henry Blackburn from doing it again? Also, you can see the impact that Deion Sanders is making, and it is something for us all to emulate. The fact that Travis Hunter in a press conference took the high road and did not speak out against this, even though it would have been completely justified and completely understandable, and might add definitely what I would have done. Instead, Travis Hunter said, stuff like that is going to happen, so I just stay humble. He did what he was supposed to do. So yeah, Deion Sanders, his leadership and the way he treats other people and talks about other people, his leaking into his team and they're kind of taking on his personality. I like that, especially the key players, Shadur, Travis Hunter, Dylan Edwards. Um, they're still a bit out of pocket. I think I think Colorado was a bit like pregame against Oregon. I've never understood the stepping on the logo at midfield. Like, I don't know why that's bad. I don't know why, like, I've never understood any of it. Like, if you step on the logo in a college football stadium, like, Okay, like you're there, you're stepping on grass. Oh no, like I don't, I've never cared about that, never understood that. Um, as far as Henry Blackburn, it is pretty wild he never got a suspension or missed a game or anything. Um, there is no system in place right now to eject a player for a dirty hit like that, which by the way, let's be clear, that was undeniably a dirty, awful play by Henry Blackburn. Went out of his way, play was over to just level... Travis Hunter, the best player on Colorado's football team. Um, like in the NFL, that would be a, they would fine you to oblivion. You would miss probably three games, get fined a ton of money. In college football, you can't find a player. Um, and right now, unless it's targeting with the crown of the helmet, you can't eject a player. And you need multiple personal foul penalties to get ejected. So it's really just a, a situation where, yeah, we, we learned from that game in college football, if you're taking cheap shots, you get one cheap shot, and if you do only one, they can't really do anything about it, which is very fascinating and uh, disappointing that, like, Colorado State, they need to find a way to, I guess you wouldn't want to punish your own player and, and give him his own suspension, but I would be, I'm disappointed that the NCAA or Mountain West or somebody didn't step in and say, hey, you can't play next week. That that kind of hit, we don't tolerate that. That kind of late, dirty hit, we don't allow. Um, I mean, if you haven't seen the video of Henry Blackburn hitting Travis Hunter, it's straight up one of the dirtiest hits I've ever seen. Play is clearly over. There's no reason to hit him. The ball's on the ground. Incomplete pass. Like, there is nothing happening there. 
and he goes out of his way just to like ruin his night and get him injured basically like that's that's you taking a shot to injure somebody that kind of stuff cannot be allowed in football where you are if you want to beat travis hunter do it on the field don't allow him to catch the ball play great coverage uh you can even hit him when he has a dang football but a defenseless receiver doesn't have the football plays over and you just run and level him that's the most dirty thing i can even imagine and uh it's it's wild and frustrating that there's no way to penalize or punish Henry Blackburn for that. Mark writes in, Mark says, Oi, mate, we always see you shuffling around notes during episodes, and I was just curious to see what they look like. Um, is it weird to say that I don't I don't want to show you? <laughs> They're just bullet points, man. I don't know. Uh, I've got stats that are key, like, um, for example, like uh, Jamar Chase had 12 catches for 141 yards uh during Monday Night Football I wanted that written down so that I could remember it more easily and have it just be sure I'm right on the stat so any any like stat I ever say on the show is written down so I could be absolutely sure I don't misquote a stat um I also sequence my stuff so that I could know like what order to talk about it but it's it's bullet points and then I I put them in order that I want to talk about sometimes I get jumbled up and or like I'll have an idea or my brain just goes and I end up on one of my bullet points early and I just try to ride with it and you'll see me crossing stuff off as I go um, but sometimes when you tell a story or present an argument or an idea or a topic, like the sequence of how you unveil it really matters. And so, um, that's like key to me. It's like the sequence of all the stuff or for example, right now, like in front of me, I've got all the Patreon questions on a piece of paper and I'm going through, like, I wrote a, a, a bullet point basically for each one to talk about, like, uh, that way I don't read your question and have no effort and nothing thought about ahead of time on what I'm going to say. I try to be thoughtful even when I answer Patreon questions. It's not just me sitting down and BSing for however long. Um, so, Mark. Well, oh, you want to see my notes? <laughs> I put it on screen very briefly. Um, John writes in on Patreon. John says, Howdy, howdy, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Zack Pearl. That's fun. I like that. Captain Zack Sparrow, baby. Um, if I ever have a boat, that's what I want people to call me. John says, you mentioned that Kellen Moore may replace Brandon Staley if Brandon Staley is fired. You also mentioned how Washington season may start to falter due to their difficult schedule. If things start to look bad for the commies, I hate that. I hate that we can call them that. Why do they come up with well, the Washington Commander is such a bad name. I hate it so much. Anyway, do you think Ron Rivera is let go if the Washington Commander season goes south and maybe Eric Bieniemy takes over as head coach? How would that change the look of the team? Um, here's what I think about, honestly, if you get rid of Ron Rivera and let's say that Sam Howell doesn't work out, you're going to have to draft a quarterback in Washington. What kind of coach do you want to be the coach next year as Washington drafts a rookie quarterback? You want an offensive minded coach. Ron Rivera doesn't help a rookie quarterback at all. Maybe Eric Bieniemy could. And uh, that's assuming a lot. We've only seen one really bad game from Sam Howell. Had four interceptions. It wasn't great. But um, yeah, if Washington's season does derail, I have no problem. I mean, this really is Ron Rivera's last shot. I probably never get to head coaching job again after Washington. Um, although he's set for life and he can walk away and be fine. I like the idea of promoting Eric Bieniemy to interim head coach and seeing how it goes. And if he does well... Keep him on because he's an offensive-minded coach, and that's really what you want when you have a young quarterback. And whether it's Sam Howell or the next guy, 
the coach that's working with a young quarterback is the most valuable court coach in your organization. So I have no opposition to Ron Rivera getting fired and Eric Bieniemy being made head coach in Washington. Okay, last question of that Donovan writes in. Donovan says, so, uh, hey, Zach, my name is Donovan, and I hate to admit it, but I'm a Broncos fan. My girlfriend is a Niners fan, so I think I'm going to hitch my ride to that wagon for the rest of the year. I had cautious optimism for the rest of the year uh, when through two games, the record was 0-2 with a point differential of minus 3. Now that we're 0-3 with a point differential of minus 53, oh, I've lost every ounce of optimism. I don't even want to ask you about this team because I know I'll get a rightfully earned negative answer. So I'll ask you something uh, about something instead. What was the worst loss you ever had as a player? And how did you deal with it after the game? Oh, man. Um, You know, the loss that really sticks out to me, um, I lost in high school to Camus High School my senior year. We lost my junior year, but they were amazing. They went to the state title game, and um, I was new to the area. I didn't even really properly understand how good Camus was. So my second year, you know, after my junior season, I spent the entire offseason working really hard to beat Camus. Like, my whole drive and motivation and force of life was I want to beat Camus my senior year. And we had them, like, 17 to 14 at halftime. And then in the second half, um, they beat us pretty bad. And uh, we couldn't keep up. And I was really sick in that game, too. I remember being, like, had, like, the flu. It was horrible. Um, also, there were college coaches at the game watching, and I, I... That's a game I remember really vividly where I took a big hit, and I laid on the ground for a long time, and they probably thought I wasn't durable. They probably thought I couldn't take a hit because I just laid on the ground for a long time. My... <laughs> I was hurting. Uh, I was full of mucus. I was super sick with the flu. We're losing. It sucked. I mean, it was a moment where I was just really low as a person. Um... In a game, that's the worst loss of my life. Um, even like my, my last loss of my senior year, we lost at Wenatchee High School in the snow and they had like crampons on. They were like, they were running circles around us. I had, I think 400 yards, something crazy, some amazing amount of yards passing and we lost and we had multiple touchdowns dropped, multiple big third downs dropped. And I remember being really deflated, but that loss didn't hurt as much. I was just kind of numb. The Camus loss was the one where I just was like, man, I, I really wanted to beat them. I really thought we had them. We worked all offseason to try to beat them, and uh, they blew us out. Um, we're, by the way, we were close at halftime. Like, we had them. We were competing really good. We had a great game plan, and it fell apart in the second half. Um, I'll be honest, though. Like, those are the only two losses I really even remember. Uh, like, I don't, you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't linger too hard on, uh, I never linger too hard on losses, uh, in sports. Um, losing's hard though, man. Losing in life is really hard. I mean, I, I've had a lot of, I think way more than as an athlete, I've had way more losses like in my personal life, whether it's calling off an engagement or my brother dying or, um, financially. I mean, I've had a lot of really tough moments that were like deflating and, um, honestly, like, promoted uh, or like led to depression and led to some really hard stuff. And sometimes you have a loss where you feel like you can't shake it, man. Um, and so I don't know where I'm going here. I, I just want to say like, I, I understand, like I, I really, have, I've had some really, really difficult moments in my life. And if you're a person who's struggling, 
I understand. I get it. I've been there. Um, feel free to go get help. Go talk to people. Um, I, I, I've always really struggled to ask for people's help or go get help. Um, I'm kind of a, a do-it-myself person. I, I'm self-employed. Uh, I never want to ask for anyone's help in anything. I just like to do it all myself. And part of that comes from, I think, childhood. And there's a whole bunch of therapy you can deal with to unpack all that. But um, I don't know, man. I just know that losing is really difficult. And I, I love you so much. And if you're having a hard time out there, um, I've, I've been there. I've, I've, I have been, I think almost people should like, I think good content for me would be just having people ask me questions about my life because I've, I've seen, I've seen crazy stuff. I've done crazy stuff. Uh, I had weird moments. Like for example, I was thinking the other day about how, um, one time I was talking about my childhood bully and I accidentally said his name, and he like threatened to sue me and attacked me. And his his way of proving publicly that he wasn't a bully when I was in middle school was by threatening to sue me and attacking me, having his entire family and social media attack me. So that's how he proved he wasn't a bully. Uh, like, I don't know. I feel like I have lot, lots of weird, interesting stories that I don't know how to pull out of myself. Um, but I mean, feel free guys. Like if you have, I, I love asking, I love when people ask me questions about way more than just sports. So, uh, anytime you want DMS are open, questions are open, man. Uh, on these threads for strong opinion sports, the Patreon questions, feel free to ask anything. I think it's really fun to talk about way more than just sports. So I love you. I appreciate you. I'll talk to you tomorrow on a Wednesday. Yes, I'll be recording tomorrow. I'm going to watch the Colts-Ravens game uh, right after this and watch Gardner Minshew beat uh, Baltimore in overtime. That'll be really fun and interesting. I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. And uh, ba-dum-bum, bam, we are done.